Well, as Gary mentioned, we're continuing in our series. We're just in week number two of the minor prophets that we're going through this summer. Um, and I don't know if you've ever uh, made the distinction between a major prophet and a minor prophet. Um, minor does not mean less than in terms of importance or wisdom or insight into the character of God, into the nature of God, into what God is doing. All it really means is that they're shorter. They're shorter books focused on a more uh, precise moment in Israel's history, um, kind of like a power-packed pill, if you will. Uh, but minor prophets sounds better than shorter prophets, don't you agree? And besides, some of them may have been tall, so who knows? Uh, so we want to keep it the minor prophets, and that's our series. Um, but like all of Scripture, again, this really can give us insight into who God is and what he's up to. Now, at the beginning of, of the message today, and really uh, relatively at the beginning of our series, I want to give you an important lesson uh, in how to study the Bible that has served me really, really well over the years. Um, and I hope it'll be helpful to you. It's helpful in understanding the continuity between the Old Testament and the New. Are they two halves? Are they two separate things? Do they go together? If so, how? Uh, it, it really is a helpful uh, thing in, in understanding the Bible. Um, and this, the way to share it with you, I guess, uh, is via a story because it's something I've shared with all of my children in a number of different ways. One of the ways that I, I shared uh, with him is I got this idea a couple of years ago from a friend. I was at Panera, um, had a meeting there, and I ran into my buddy Steve, and Steve was real, real excited. He had a Bible in his hand. So he said, Jeff, could you take this back over uh, and have Isaac sign the front of the Bible? I said, sure, Steve, I'd be able to do that. But man, you seem really fired up. What's going on? He says, well, do you know, do you know Dr. Bob Tuttle? Well, if you've met Bob Tuttle from Asbury Theological Seminary, you won't forget him. He's quite a character. And he challenged Steve and a number of different people with this idea. He said, go buy a Bible that has margins in it so that you can write in the margin. And then think of one of your children and spend a year reading that Bible cover to cover and just write daily reflections on the scriptures, write encouraging stories, write prayers. Uh, and at the end of the year, you've got quite a legacy piece that you can present to your kids. And when I heard that, I thought, this is the coolest thing ever. I love that idea. Then I thought, oh, my goodness, I got four kids. That's going to be a lot of work. Uh, but I set out on the journey, and sure enough, I was able to complete uh, the four Bibles for the kids. And at the beginning of each one of their Bibles, I put this lesson right at the start. Um, it's the idea that God is on a mission to understand the scriptures, you've got to understand the mission of God. It's what pulls the whole thing together. Theologians will call this the missional hermeneutic. Hermeneutic's the fancy theological name for the proper interpretation and study and application of the scripture to our lives. And the way we understand scripture uh, appropriately and rightly is by knowing the mission of God. It's the scarlet redemptive thread that pulls together the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And here it is. God is on a mission to bring all people and creation itself under his good and glorious reign. That's the mission of God. God is on a mission to bring all peoples of the earth and creation itself under his good and his glorious reign. In Genesis chapter 3, it records this, the history of the first choice of sin by Adam and Eve. And when that happened, it was passed on to all of us so that we are born separated from God. We're not in right relationship with him. 
And so the Bible is really a story of God's quest for bringing us back into right relationship, the price he would pay for redeeming us, another big fancy word that just basically means to buy us back, to make us his own. And so this mission is the same from Genesis to Revelation, from the first command to Adam and Eve to go and fill the earth with image-bearing worshipers, to fill the earth with people who will worship God, to, in chapter 12 of Genesis, uh, when he said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, foretelling that the Messiah would come through his line, to the nation of Israel, to which he said, you are a light unto the Gentiles, and you are to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth, to the Lord Jesus himself, who said, he came to seek and save all that are lost, and then he passed the baton to us, the church, when he told us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. This is the redemptive thread of God and the mission of God from Genesis to Revelation to bring all peoples of the earth and creation itself under his good and glorious reign. So let's keep that in mind as we go into today's study on Nahum. Now, Nahum, I found uh, it's... Uh, it was an interesting fellow. His name actually means comfort, uh, and his purpose was to bring comfort to the people of God that are in a really tight spot, as we're going to find out more about that. But I found that it was humorous that he's one of the more avoided prophets, um, harder to interpret and understand in some cases, and so they assigned him to me on the teach team, and I've um, I gladly accepted that challenge. Another thing that I noticed... Um, was interesting is then all the church lectionaries, these are the readings that denominations put together. Uh, usually they go through a year, three-year cycle where there's daily readings of encouragement uh, for the parishioners of that particular denomination. Well, in all the church lectionaries, there's not one reference to the book of Nahum. Um, and so that's, aren't you guys glad you came here today? <laughs> So we're going to find out why, because the main reason they're not in any church lectionaries is the book is largely about judgment. Um, I mean, who wants to read as their daily encouragement? The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and the idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are vile. Eesh. You're not going to find that on a cross stitch hanging up in the living room of your house, I'm sure. Let's look at what's going on in this time of history. Perhaps this will help us to understand. I love this slide. It's really a picture of all the minor prophets and kind of what was going on uh, in the nation of Israel at the time. To the left off the screen is the uh, idea of the kingdom was united and it reached its pinnacle, the kingdom of Israel, under David and then his son Solomon. And so that's kind of the high point in the history of Israel. But in the later years of Solomon's life, he began to be disobedient to God. And then all the successive kings after him, the majority were uh, sliding into deeper and deeper rebellion and distance from God. And it comes to a point around 931 BC where the kingdom is divided. The northern kingdom kind of goes one way, the southern kingdom goes another way, and, and the nation of Israel is split. You'll see on the top, the northern kingdom sort of ends there just by Hosea, and that's when they are taken literally into captivity, taken from their uh, place of uh, where they resided, and shipped off to the nation of Assyria and their capital, Nineveh. 
All right, and so this is really hard times for the nation of Israel. Now, below, the green sort of comes to an end, and that's when Judah is taken into captivity by Babylon uh, years later. And so this is really a hard time for the nation of Israel. Now, our prophet is up to the top, Nahum, and you notice he's kind of uh, put together there with Jonah and Nineveh. He's speaking to the, uh, the city of this nation, Assyria. The, their capital city is Nineveh. And what I find very interesting is Jonah preached to those very same people 100 years earlier. And if you remember the story, not to steal of the thunder, whoever's speaking on that, that particular Sunday, Jonah preached to them and they repented. And God relented from his judgment that was coming towards them. But now we find 100 years later, they obviously were back to their old ways. And uh, in this time, there's no repentance by them. And so Nahum is foretelling the coming judgment of God against this people that were exceedingly, exceedingly wicked. Now, for the people of God, this was not a good time to be alive. It was bad. And they would be tempted to think, God has forgotten me, or maybe God has given up on me, or, or worse yet, maybe this time around, God's not big enough for the challenge. And now we could take on Egypt and Pharaoh and all those guys, but man, this is, this is the Assyrians. Is God up to the challenge this time? And we can identify with that, can't we? In times of difficulty, it takes faith, and it is a re there's a reason the New Testament calls it the fight of faith, because sometimes God goes silent. And we're thinking, God, where are you? Do you care anymore? Do your promises even work anymore? God, I, I'm bearing this burden, and it feels like I'm bearing it alone. And so there's this struggle that we have as the people of God, especially in times of pain and sorrow and hurt. Be rest assured that the message of Nahum is the message for us today. God is a God of comfort, and he will be faithful to his promises. But it was bad. Nahum 3.1 says, Nineveh was a city of blood, a full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. And this is the cleaned up version. History tells us that they would uh, regularly skin or dismember live human beings, and then they would display their heads on city walls and trees or put them on stakes and make their friends parade around the city streets uh, with their head on a stick. Think Nazis World War II. It was a brutal reign of terror. And so, they're under this brutal regime, but they, as you can see, are still operating as their own kingdom. They had a king. His name was Manasseh. Think puppet ruler under the thumb of Assyria, under the thumb of Nineveh. Manasseh was the longest king of uh, any of the kings of Judah, 55 years, and he too was an evil man. He was a mass murderer. He was an idol worshiper. He promoted idolatry, he built pagan temples, and he sacrificed one of his own sons in the fire of worship to the false god Moloch. So if you're ever tempted to think your life's getting tough, and you're ever tempted to think things are going bad in our world, just pull out Nahum and read it. Three short chapters, you'll feel better about your situation. It's important to understand how Israel got into this situation in the first place. I thought they were the people of God. I thought they were supposed to be exempt for things like this. Well, we need to understand this, this very important relationship between God and his people, which really is important for us to hear, not just about the ancient people of God, but, but to let that play forward for us today. 
You see, when God chose his people, that is his act of gracious redemption. It's his gift of salvation. But our salvation is not just for us alone. His choice of you and me is always for the sake of others. That's why he left you here. If you're a follower of Christ, he wants to be with you, but he's, he's foregoing that opportunity to be with you for a purpose. And so we are to be the show people of God. We're to show the world what it's like to live as the people of God in relationship with God, just like Israel was. He tells them clearly in Isaiah 49, verse 6, I will make you a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation can reach to the ends of the earth. This was their job. God is on a mission of bringing salvation to all people of the earth. I like the phrase from Spider-Man, Uncle Ben, to Peter saying, with great power comes great responsibility. And this is true of us as the people of God as well. There's so much at stake here. God is wanting people all over the world. God is wanting people in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our places of work to know that he is a gracious God who is willing to forgive and wants to be in right relationship with all. And so the people of Israel resisted this and they were not being faithful to God. And so God warned them time and again that if you're disobedient to me, times of discipline will necessarily come. And so we find that the Assyrians were simultaneously God's enemy and yet they also acted as the agent of discipline to the nation of Israel. Now, this is kind of a turning point, Nahum for the people of God during this time in history. They're, they're starting to get it. They're starting to respond to the discipline. And for me, I, I don't want to be a guy who resists God's discipline. I don't know about you, uh, because God always wins, right? He, he's bigger and tougher than I am. And, and so it's better to come around quickly. I like to say to the Lord, Lord, you, you don't have to crush me. Just squeeze me a little bit, Lord, and I, I, I want to respond pretty quickly. You don't need to send the Assyrian army after me. All right, I, I want to be quicker in my response to you. And so Judah was starting to turn. They were starting to realize. And we see this in verse 15 of chapter 1. You can look in your bulletins. Um, we've provided the scriptures there for you, uh, some of the select scriptures we'll be looking at today. Let me read verse 15. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. The people were longing for good news. The people were looking for some ray of hope, some shred of, of news that would lift their spirits and raise their confidence. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Perhaps you're in that situation right now. I remember as we're uh, remembering Memorial Day today, um, my granddad used to tell me stories of World War II. It was fascinating. He was the, in the 28th Infantry Division, um, and he fought all throughout the war in the uh, European theater. And... Uh, he was on the front lines, and so I just remember some of the fascinating stories of fighting through the Hurricane Forest, and one time he was holed up in a house and surrounded by Germans for three days. Um, just fascinating stuff. But one story I, I remember came from my grandmother and my mom, and they pulled out an old yellow telegram that they had received that was the information that my grandfather was wounded in battle. But in the telegram, that's all it said. It didn't tell how bad it was, whether he was going to live, where he was going to die, where he was at. It's just he's wounded. And so they didn't have internet. They didn't have cell phones. They had to sit and wait for the next telegram to show up. And it didn't show up for days bleeding into a week or two. Could you imagine? Oh, my goodness, how difficult that would be 
Fortunately, in his case, they got the next telegram that said you know, that he would make a full and complete recovery from the wounds that he had experienced in battle. But wow. Well, the people of God were kind of in that space. They're just looking and they're longing and they're waiting for God. And it just seems like forever until finally the telegram comes. And what's interesting is Nahum decides to use a phrase that may sound familiar to you because Paul, in the writing of Romans, quotes from this as he's trying to explain our responsibility to take the gospel to the people that we know. And he quotes this this beautiful idea of there on the mountains is one who's bringing good news. But we also see this in Isaiah 52. And so what's interesting to know, this is really interesting to me personally, is that when Paul was saying the gospel, guess what? These two passages would come to his mind. This is what Paul understood from the scriptures. When, when you read in the New Testament according to the scriptures, they didn't have the New Testament yet. According to the scriptures means the Old Testament. All right? And so his understanding of gospel came from Isaiah 52, 7 through 9, and Nahum 115. It's worth taking a look at this together. There's three parts that would inform his understanding. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim shalom, peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. This concept of peace, shalom, is a beautiful concept uh, in the Hebrew mind. It gives the idea of living under the reign of God so that God's provision is so robust, so full, so perfect, that life is full to the fullest possible extent, that life is as it should be, life abundantly, life to the full. That's what the people of God long for. And that happens when we come under the protective reign of our God. That's the first aspect that would come to mind when we say gospel, our God reigns. Verse eight, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see with their own eyes. The second part of the gospel always is that God is faithful and he's coming again. He will return. His promises are sure. You can take them to the bank. Our God is going to return. Verse 9, burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord reigns, the Lord returns, and the Lord redeems. This is music to the ears of any oppressed people. If you're being oppressed, you're desperate for relief. God hates all forms of oppression, all forms of slavery, all forms of cruelty. God hates it all, whether it be the physical sense of hostile nations or rogue people that are inflicting damage upon other human beings or the spiritual sense that we're enslaved by our sins. God hates it all. And as Redeemer, he's willing to pay any price to provide the freedom to his people and restoration of right relationship with him if they would only just heed the message and humble their hearts. That's what God wants. So after years and years of waiting, the discipline is sinking in and the people finally are starting to look to God of his justice is about to come. And this really is the theme of Nahum, redemption. God will rise up and redeem his people. So let's look at that and develop that a little closer. Verses uh, two and three of chapter one, let me read those for us. 
Here we find out about God that he is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Here is something for us to see that is very important to know about God. God is perfect in his justice. God is perfect. And in his justice, he cannot nor will he turn a blind eye to sin. He will not sweep it under the rug and say, ah, that's, I didn't see that one. Don't worry about it. By nature, he could not be perfect if he turned a blind eye to justice. He will, <clears throat> according to the scripture, bring punishment to all who are guilty. Now, I know this is not popular. I have lots of conversations with people, and this tends to be a stumbling block for many. But when they object to this, I try to help them think this through. I like to reason with them and say, no, you really do want a God who is a God of justice. And let me tell you why. Because God is perfect, and he, like the people that are victims of these things, hates every murder. He hates every form of abuse, every violation, every act of violence. It hurts God. He hates it. And that's a really, really good thing. And you should hate it too. And when you are the victim, you end up siding quickly with God. This is very minor, but uh, a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, I had a meeting downtown, a lunch downtown, and so I parked in one of the parking garages and evidently forgot to lock my car. And so when I came back, the car was clearly broken into and things were rummaged around and, and uh, you know, a couple things were missing. I think what got their attention is I had some cashed checks sitting on the, on, uh, the, the seat, the passenger seat, and they, those were gone. They took those. And fortunately, I didn't lose anything of value, but wow. I hated that feeling of being violated like that. And that was just so minor. I mean, people are going through so many major things. And so there's something in us like God that hates every act of injustice. No, we should be happy. We should be glad. <coughs> Excuse me. When God will hold uh, all sin accountable. But to do that, he has to hold the big ones and the little ones. He doesn't wink an eye at sin. All sin needs the judgment of God. So it's important here. Uh, another lesson of this is unless you see the justice of God, you're not really going to be able to grasp the grace of God. So don't downplay the justice. Let yourself marinate in that a little bit. Why does God bring sin to account? Why does God bring judgment? Because in his holiness, he must bring judgment there for his righteousness to be shown. And it's in understanding his justice that you'll grow in your appreciation of grace. Because you and I both need grace. Does that make sense? And so this is really, really important for us to see. But these people knew, and we instinctively know, that God's justice is administered differently to those who are his enemy and to those who are his followers. And if you've been tracking with me, you should have a big old question mark there. How in the world is that possible? How is it administered differently? Well, the key is found in understanding redemption. 
And so let's look at verse 1-8 and verse 3-19. These are two kind of bookend verses, and they're very poetically, uh, strategically placed in the, the construction of the book of Nahum. And in verse 1-8 and 3-19, there's a word that's the same word uh, that, that would mean a lot to the people who are reading it, and that word is abar, Passover. Passover. And the readers would immediately make this connection, this connection to the great redemptive event in Israel's history, where there, when they were in the bondage and slavery of Egypt, God, their redeemer, came and redeemed them from that slavery and brought judgment and justice to their oppressive nation. All right, and so, if you'll recall, God said that he would come through the nation of Egypt and he would bring his judgment. Um, and in that same night, if the nation of Israel would put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, God's judgment, as it was passing over the nation of uh, Egypt in its fullness, would pass by the nation of Israel if they were under the blood of the lamb. And so we see that this is their hope, that this would be their story too. In verse 7 and 8, Nahum says, The Lord is good. He is a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But as an overwhelming flood, he will make an end to Nineveh. He will pursue his foes in the realm of darkness. There it is, the word. Overwhelming flood is the word Passover, Abar. And so what he's saying is that my justice, my fearsome wrath is going to pass over this wicked nation. In its fullness of its expression, my judgment is coming. But here's the beautiful parallel because it, it matches up to verse 319. Speaking to Nineveh, it says, nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? The word endless cruelty there is modified by the word abar. And it's the idea that they were so cruel that their cruelty passed over the known world. And to the degree that they were cruel to the known world, God is going to bring vengeance and, and just, uh, justice to that nation as he passes over them. And that's the beautiful parallelism of Nahum. God's judgment is coming in its fullness. But it also brings to mind this idea that he passes over. As we know from the story of Nineveh, God does not delight in bringing his justice. He is patient. That's what Peter says God is patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is the mission of God. This is the passion of God, that all people would come to him. So he does not delight in bringing his justice, but he will do so. So back to this question. How is it possible then for God to bring justice to his enemies? Israel was obviously guilty too, but this justice passes them by. The answer is, and always has been, and always will be, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the great redeemer. He's the plan that God has instituted from eternity past. That he would be the one to come and live the life that we were supposed to live, the perfect sinless life. And that he died the death that we were all supposed to die. The scriptures clearly state that there on the cross, he took upon himself our guilt, our shame, our sin, and in those moments on the cross, the fullness and the fierceness of God's unmitigated wrath was poured out into the person of Christ, so much so that his wrath was fully satisfied. So when God's wrath comes to judge the world of which we are a part, it will either pass over you and you will experience it, 
for the justice of the things that you have done, or it can pass you by because when God sees your heart, he sees that your sins have been paid. His wrath has been satisfied on your behalf because of the act of the great redeemer, the one who was willing to pay any price so that you could have life. That's incredible news. That made the people of God's hearts leap with joy, knowing that their God was coming to redeem them. And it can do that for us today as well. So let me ask you this morning, where are you at in respect to God's judgment for you? There's some here today, very likely, that still isn't sure what you think about all this Christianity stuff. I am so glad you're here. We want you to know this is really a safe place for you to come. And come and take as long as you need, but please don't take any longer than is necessary. Be proactive. Wrestle with your questions. I would love to meet with you, help to answer any questions. I'll meet with you regularly for as long as it takes as you explore uh, the questions that you have. I know Gary would do the same thing. And so just invite you to continue to come back. We, we're glad that you're here. For the majority of us here today, this should just be a message of good news. I mean, let it sink down. Let it pass the 18 inches from your head to your heart. And, and, and man, let it bring a smile to your face. You are going to escape the judgment of God and that God has been so satisfied in the payment of your sin that he actually, uh, there's a fancy biblical term, is propitious towards us. The propitiation is that God's heart now turns favorably towards you so that it becomes propitious towards you. You move from his enemy to his friend. That's incredible news. But also, let's, let's be reminded that God's on a mission. And we're part of that. Our, our salvation's not just for us, it's for the sake of others. And I know that can be a scary thing, so I'm not talking about being weird and cornering your friends at work. And I'm talking about naturally loving them and building relationships. Do you realize that the majority, there's surveys that show the majority of non-Christians say they don't know one Christian well enough to consider them somebody that they trust? So maybe it looks like for you this week setting about being that trustworthy friend for someone who's far from God. So when times of tragedy or tension or transition are coming into their lives, they've got somebody they can talk to that they trust. Friends, this is when Christianity becomes fun, when we engage with the work of God, when we get swept up in what he's doing, the tsunami of his grace that's washing over this world, and we get to be a part of it. And so I know it's a scary endeavor, but God will use you if you'll just believe that he can and you take simple steps of obedience. Invite God into those redemptive relationships in your life. And so I'm thankful for Nahum's reminder that God is a, a person that we can trust. God is good um, and his justice is perfect in that we can rejoice knowing that he also has provided for your and my redemption. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at this obscure little minor prophet who has such a major and powerful message. And so, God, I just pray for all of us today um, that we would uh, bask in the glow of the assurance of our redemption and just how complete it is in Christ. And God, just give us the courage to engage with you, uh, to be vessels through which your redemption can reach out to others as we join you in the work you're doing. We pray this all in the powerful and risen name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.